Part 2 Chapter 8 of Canada's Hundred Days with the Canadian Corps from Amiens to Mons August 8th through November 11th, 1918 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Mike Vendetti, Canyon City, Colorado MikeVendetti.com Canada's Hundred Days by John Lavesley Part 2 Chapter 8 After the Battle Fighting went on during September 3rd, 4th, and 5th, when the enemy was forced back to the east bank of the Canal du Nord. All along the line and the Canadian Corps came into possession of the watery triangle formed by the canal on the east and the Sensei River on the north. On our right, south of the Reres Cambi Road, the 1st Canadian Division had not much difficulty during the day of September 3rd pushing forward to the line of the canal, to which the western bank sloped gently down through water meadows, the only shelter being a few gnarled old pollards on the bank. From sans les north the area was flooded, and the enemy had good protection for his machine-gunners in the woods that thickly clothed the steep eastern bank. North of the road, our 4th Division had a much harder task, and had sharp fighting before the area was cleared. On the divisional right, the 10th Brigade fought its way forward to the canal through the enemy defense system, resting on the three villages of Saint-Mont, the Conseil-Quentin, and Romacourt, the latter being captured by the 44th Battalion, formerly of Winnipeg, but now recruited from New Brunswick. These villages had been untouched by war and contained great store of ordnance and material, with a complete hospital train, tucked away behind the impregnable Dorcourt quaint line, and beyond the area we sailed. He had built up there a great depot. From a distance it looks as though a pocket handkerchief might cover them. They stand intact, the churches rising above the red-tiled roofs, the whole nestling in wooded groves, the sight of these villages amid green fields is more eloquent than anything that has gone before of the success of the battle. For here, as in former years, the Bosch had settled down for the winter. He had filled them with his material of war. But intact, though they seem from a distance, on entering there is evidence on every hand of the process of ruin. For hardly is the enemy driven out than he pours upon them the whole fury of his rage and disappointment. From across the canal, guns, great and small, keep up a ceaseless cannonade, and for days gas hangs heavy in their narrow streets. A beautiful spire is that of the church of Vicor St. Quentin. But even as one admires, a shell hits it fair and square, and it disappears in a cloud of dust. Nevertheless, the fields are still green. Soldiers gather pumpkin in the village gardens. It is an astonishing experience to pass into these lush pastures from out the blight and the taint of no man's land. A court, St. Quentin, must ever figure in Canadian history as the village where Canadian troops first rescued the unhappy imprisoned French people. Vive les Canadiens! Vive les brave Canadiens! It was a glad cry from the heart, soon to grow familiar to our ears. But it was first heard at this village. Forty-six persons for four years, 
held in slavery, hid for several days in one small cellar. When the order had gone out for the villagers to be evacuated, half-starved, emaciated, but very happy and voluble when we found them. Their deliverance was actually effected by Major General E. W. B. Morrison, General Officer Commanding Canadian Royal Artillery. A young girl, a slender brunette, embraced him, kissing him on either cheek. In me, she cried, my general, the French people salute our savior. With saddened hearts, these poor folk passed back through the desolation of no man's land, where they had been wont to visit the feats and feast days of neighboring smiling villages, Cagnicourt and Dury, Chesley and Vizinatoris, now not to be distinguished from the general ruin. The 11th Brigade had some hard fighting mopping up along the canal bank, where enemy posts held out abstentially. Brigadier General Odium finally cleared up the situation after he had made a personal reconnaissance during which he was wounded slightly. Our 12th Brigade had a very difficult task in the marshy area between Ecourt St. Quentin and the Sensei River. The 85th Battalion, Nova Scotia, in particular, suffered heavy casualties fighting its way through swampy ground, here bisected with ditches and swept by the fire of any machine-gun post north of the river. They finally cleared the area with the capture of Paulol, a village secure at the juncture of the Canal du Nord and the Sensei, which from here east is canalized. But we were up against a dead wall. The enemy had blown up all the bridges on the night of October 2nd and 3rd, says Sir Arthur Curry, and was holding a commanding position on the eastern bank of the canal with a large number of machine guns. His artillery was very active, more especially from the north, and it was impossible to send bodies of troops by daylight over the long and bare slopes bordered by the canal. Our left flank was now very exposed to artillery fire from the north, and the nature of the ground we were holding, the strength of the obstacle in front of the corps, and the resolute attitude of the enemy forbade any attempts to further exploit our success. It was necessary to prepare minutely the details of the operation required to attack successfully the Canal du Nord line. Accordingly, no further attempts were made at this time. In the night of September 3rd and 4th, the 2nd and 3rd Canadian Divisions relieved the 1st and 4th Canadian Divisions, respectively, and the 4th British Division was relieved by the 1st British Division, which had come under the Canadian Corps on September 1st, and had been concentrated after that date in the Monchet le pre vis en artois Guimaparia. The left flank of the Corps was again very long, and in accordance with the policy adopted by the 1st British Division, was transferred in the line from the Canadian Corps to the twenty-second corps i handed over command of that sector extending from Paulel exclusively to etang inclusive and facing north to this g o c twenty-second corps at midnight september fourth and fifth the enemy had flooded the valley of the sensei river and all the bridges had been destroyed our engineers were very actively engaged in an effort to lower these floods and wrest the control from the enemy on our right flank the 17th Corps was engaged in heavy fighting in and around Mosores, and all the attempts to cross the Canal du Nord at that point had been repulsed. A thorough reconnaissance of our front had shown that the frontal attack of the Canal du Nord line was impossible. 
The eastern bank of the Canal du Nord was strongly wired and was generally much higher than the western bank. The whole of our forward area was under direct observation from Oise le Vigor and the high ground on the northern flank, and any movement by day was quickly engaged by hostile artillery. No battery positions within a range sufficient to carry on the preparation of the attack or to support it were available, and any attempt to bring guns forward of the general line, Villers, Zays, Concorde, Brisee, were severely punished. The battery positions south and west of this general line were subjected to intense gas shelling every night. The Canal du Nord was in itself a serious obstacle. It was under construction at the outbreak of the war and had not been completed. Generally speaking, it followed the valley of the river Agache, but not the actual bed of the river. The average width was about 100 feet, and it was flooded as far south as the lock, 800 yards southwest of saint lage montquain just north of the Corps' southern boundary. South of this and to the right of the Corps' front, the canal was dry, and its bottom was at the natural ground level, the sides of the canal consisting of high earth and brick banks. The attack of the Canal du Nord could not, therefore, be undertaken singly by the Canadian Corps, but had to be part of a larger scheme. This required considerable time to arrange, and, until September 27th, no changes developed on the Corps' front. The obstacle which had stopped our advance also made our positions very strong defensively, and advantage was taken of this fact to rest and refit the divisions. As much of the Corps' artillery as could be spared was withdrawn from the line to rest the men and horses. The line was held very thinly, but active patrolling at nights and sniping were kept up. A complete program of harassing fire by artillery and machine guns was also put in force nightly. The Corps Heavy Artillery Brigadier General R. H. Massey carried out wire-cutting counter-battery shoots and gas concentrations daily in preparation for the eventual operations. Light railways, roads, bridges, and water points were constructed right up to the forward area and the bridging material which would be required for the Canal du Nord was accumulated well forward. Ammunition dumps were established at suitable places. Detailed reconnaissance of the canal and trenches were carried out by aeroplane and also by daring patrol and all available documents regarding the canal construction were gathered with a view to preparing the plans for the future attack. On September 13th, Major General, then Brigadier General, F. O. W. Loomis, took over command of the 3rd Canadian Division from Major General L. J. Lipset, who went to command the 4th British Division. The former was succeeded in command of the 2nd Canadian Infantry Brigade by Brigadier General, then Lieutenant Colonel R. P. Clark. The direct observation from Oise le Vigueur, to which the Corps commander alludes, was very annoying to our troops. The Arras-Cambrai road was still the main line of our communications roads to the north being shot up by the enemy batteries now commanding our left flank from north of the river, for miles back, while the secondary roads further south had been blown to pieces and it took time to repair them. A lorry could not pass along the Cambrai road without being subjected to shell-fire and high explosive, but nothing could daunt these lorry drivers personnel of the Army Service Corps, men bringing up ammunition and the drivers of ambulances, the road was strewn with wrecked lorries, but they carried on their task, driving steadily at the speed of not more than five or six miles an hour, picking their way among shell holes in the paves, and giving no more heed to the dangers encompassing them 
than if they were teeming in their own home towns. And this was not all. With the quieting down of the battle, the Air Force with the Corps was reduced to the artillery observation buses and a few scouting machines. The enemy took advantage of this to send over an occasional circus, which for the time held command of the air in this sector. Late in the afternoon of a September day, one of these made its appearance from the direction of Duvai, flying high above the plateau just west of the canal. Against the leader, a lone fighting plane, whose wings bore the familiar red, white, and blue circles of the British RAF, launched his attack. Fast and high he flew, but the enemy was higher still, attacking the enemy leader from an angle below. He fired off his machine gun, missed, and swung around. But at that instant the enemy caught him with a volley, and his machine gun burst in flames, slowly fell. And before it had fallen far, our gallant airman jumped out and began to fall faster, faster still faster than his machine, which followed him as might a leap floating gently to the ground. He fell into a swampy place and was buried from human kin. Encouraged by this success, the entire circus swooped low down on the Cambry Road, flying westward just over the tops of the trees, machine-gunning as they went. Then, when they reached the crossroad to Dury, they swung off south, down the Dorset-Quinn trench system, but a few feet above the ground, blazing away into our men crowding there in support our archies, and even field batteries directed on them. A tremendous fulsade, and our men could be seen firing their rifles, but only one shot seemed to take effect, and any machine limping off like a wounded duck back over the canal. The rest of the circus passed out of sight south. But it was not always thus. Old Joey, a slow-flying artillery observation plane, was loafing along one day along the canal to Nord, when down on him swooped an enemy fighting machine of far greater power and speed. Old Joey pursued his course unperturbed until Heine was upon him, then swung smartly around, bringing the only gun to bear, and in a minute Heine went crashing. We had time to count the spoils. Since August 26th, the Canadian Corps and the British divisions fighting under it had encountered and overwhelmed no less than eleven enemy divisions, while four other divisions had been engaged partially and identification secured of elements of three more. Five complete trench systems were taken, and the captured area approximated 56 square miles, with an average penetration of 12 and a quarter miles. 10,360 prisoners of all ranks were captured in 22 villages, while the material was great beyond reckoning, chief being two 4.1-inch long naval guns, 89 heavy and field guns, 1,016 machine guns, 73 trench motors, two searchlights, and one helio besides wagons, horses, and vast quantities of ammunition and engineering supplies. But war is not all victory. There is the agony and sacrifice. Busy across this rolling plain are our burial parties, and it is not only the Hun they bury. Some of our men lie stark and huddled under lee of enemy machine-gun posts. Others still hang in the fastness of the wire. Long lines of Red Cross lorries moved to the rear. Far across the seas, from Cape Breton to Vancouver Island, from the international boundary to remote northern outposts, soon will flutter little yellow messages bringing sorrow and anguish to quiet firesides. But they have not suffered in vain. By their exhortations and their sacrifice, they have brought the war appreciably nearer its close. It is a melancholy scene down the Cambry Road through Vis-en-Etros, past Dury, 
on the left and visitor Le Cardinal on the right. All is desolate. It is a typical no-man's-land landscape. Countryside is pitted with shell-holes and scarred with trenches. Avenues of trees along the road show only blasted stumps. There is not a green thing. Everywhere is the debris of war. The litter and the ruin, broken lorries, shattered remnants of an armored car, the twisted rails of a light railway, scrap iron of all descriptions, ammunition boxes piled high. These things cumber the roadside. Everywhere are horses in various stages of decomposition. Here and there are rows of our dead, waiting burial parties. Over all is a brooding stench of decay and stale gas. End of Part 2, Chapter 8 Recording by Mike Vendetti MikeVendetti.com